So the way in which and the reason why I started working on these uh, aspects is that precisely I was already interested through this inquiry into secularization, interested in understanding what was specific about colonialism as it was deployed since the 19th century. And I don't, and of course, you know, one, one very obvious way of doing this is, is to say, well, you know, you have the Industrial Revolution. So um, precisely because I was trying to use secularization as a way of understanding what changes in the very structure of empire during the, the 19th century, it made total sense to some extent to, to try and explain this, um, to try and describe rather aspects of this industrializing process in a, in a different way by using these categories I was trying to, to, um, to, uh, to, uh, to rethink, namely empire on the one hand and secularization on the other. Spaces that are completely segregated and racialized. What it is like to be, you know, queer and Arab, and how difficult that might be, or how do you negotiate that? The destruction of the social cultural worlds of black people, of African people, those who were here before. Which kinds of bodies get disciplined and regulated through discourse, but also in actual practice? Hi, I'm Magda Waku. I'm Caroline Honorian. And I'm Leopold Lambert. This is the Phenomenalist podcast, operating in parallel with the Phenomenalist magazine that engages with the politics of space and bodies. Our hope is to provide a useful platform where activists, academics and practitioners build solidarities across geographical scales. Each episode, we invite someone we admire and learn from their experiences, research and struggle. Hello everyone, uh, it's been a while but we're back with uh, an episode of our regular podcast and uh, today I'm very happy to be uh, with uh, my guest Mohamed Amer Mezian, uh, who is a researcher and a philosopher and even a musician uh, as well as a research fellow lecturer at Columbia University in New York but uh, uh, currently uh, in Paris at the office, in the, in the Phenomenalist office. Uh, and he's also the author of a book that we are going to talk about today. Uh, so it's a book written in French for the moment, and um, I'm sure many of you will be hoping for uh, a translation in English. The title in French is Des Empires sous la Terre, Histoire écologique et raciale de la, sécula la sécularisation, that we can more or less translate by uh, Underground Empires, Uh, ecological and racial history of secularization uh, and indeed uh, we, we will, that's exactly what we're going to talk about today uh, hello Mohamed <laughs> thank you very much for um, for accepting to, to talk about uh, your book today uh, as we were saying just before recording I think I'm, I'm very I'm always very eager to, to try to translate into English uh, uh, some of the most uh, interesting things that are happening over here and so let's let's dive right in uh, um, and I should I should preface I suppose my question that it, it is a philosophical book it's not an easy book but it is a, a very rewarding book when you really give it the time to to really focus on each each of the ideas that are being developed Uh, and so, as such, I prepared my I prepared my questions uh, for once. Um, people will be probably happy about that. <laughs> I prepared my question in advance, and so I'm going to read them, which might sound a little bit less spontaneous, but probably better for everyone's sake. So, uh, so in your introduction, you designate religion as a European concept. And establish that, and I quote here. The, I quote, although this is my translation, I should say. The borders of what is religious and what is not must be envisioned as political decisions and effects from the sovereign power's practice. End of quote. Uh, can, we, can we start by talking more about this before we even talk about secularization? Like, let's talk about religion itself as a concept. Right. Uh, thank you, uh, Leopold, um, for your invitation and, and for the, these questions. So... Um, I'm, you know, reformulating and formulating this, this something that I consider as a, as, as a new paradigm. So something that has been um, 
you know, argued by many um, anthropologists and also scholars of, of religion, that is to say, and even Derrida himself has made the argument uh, a long time ago, um, and precisely the, 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 um, this paradigm is premised upon the, the idea that precisely this notion of religion, this concept of religion, is not something that we should take for granted. Um, there are many reasons why we shouldn't take it for granted. The first one is that a historical perspective on this notion itself shows that it emerges um, as a, a, an anthropological category. Uh, um, it emerges during, you know, the, the er, early modern, uh, um, in early modern sort of anthropological literature. Um, so this has been sort of, you know, shown by, by anthropologists, uh, including Talal Assad, but also other, other um, uh, figures. And for me, this is a starting point, um, because I really consider this as something that, that um, um, forces us to rethink many things from these points of view, from this point of view, including um, the birth of, of modernity and the way in which, um, you know, the very, the very possibility of negating God or even defending religion as such, like as, you know, this, this very idea according to which we need religion as, as something that is vital for societies to, you know, be ordered in a certain way. For me, these are two opposite discourses that, you know, are premised upon this, this, um, this invention of religion, so to speak. But the book is not focused on that. It's 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 the it's a point of departure precisely because I consider um, the critique of this concept of religion to be mostly uh, uh, um, you know done by, by by other scholars. So I just consider myself as as um, as a scholar who works uh, by using this paradigm, but uh, also trying to deploy you know new consequences out of it. But um, the only thing I could say is that I think that there is an ambiguity, though, behind this idea, which is sometimes, you know, restated more or less dogmatically, namely that, you know, your religion is a European construct or something like that, is that sometimes, and, you know, when Derrida formulates this criticism of the concept of religion, when he talks about globalization, la mondialatinisation, um, He's really talking about the word religion, whereas uh, my perspective is less focused on the analysis of a word and therefore on the criticism of a word, um, but rather on the way in which we use this word and so the usages of the concept of religion. Um, and I think that these usages are, you know, there are multiple usages of this word. Um, and it's the usages themselves that are more important than, than just, you know, the word itself. So, uh, in other words, to be more um, precise, maybe, um, I think that this perspective is interesting because it prevents us from just saying, ah, you know, uh, humans have invented God because they needed religion, for example. Mm. Such a sentence can be problematized. Um, as soon as you ask not only what is the human, something that Marx has already sort of um, asked to people like Feuerbach, for example, but rather, what do you call religion here? Um, and what do you assume when you say, ah, you know, I can actually formulate the sentence as if, you know, this goes without saying. So what I, th what I think is that it really sort of, um, it doesn't really say that uh, secularism is false or is just, you know, colonial Protestant as, you know, some scholars have, have said, you know, but rather, in my view, it helps us um, um, show that even our language of, I mean, re reactionary language, but also some, you know, some of our languages of emancipation are actually premised upon something that has a particular story, particular history, and cannot be, you know, universalized from that point of view. So, um, yeah, but for me, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a starting point more than something that, you know, I, I more than the, the, the core mm. idea. No, absolutely, and that's why we're starting with it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so diving, diving, uh, diving in much more within your, your own very argument, <clears throat> um, one of its very basis is, to, is that we need to disillusion ourselves that secularization consists in the removal of religion from the political realm. 
could you could you tell us how you would define it instead? Yes, so um, I can say at least two things. I mean, to begin with, there's been um, you know in in the literature um, which has emerged since nine eleven basically um, on political theology, public religion. Um, there was this idea that secularization um, basically doesn't exist at all. Um, and I sort of argue against that view, uh, namely, I mean, for a specific reason. I think that most of the criticism, which is a legitimate criticism of the word or, or the concept or the secularizing secularization thesis, as some scholars say, was precisely to say, well, there is no decline of religion, there is no such thing as a privatization of religion, precisely because of what's happening since 9-11, for example. So that it's been a sort of, a, um, you know, leitmotiv or, 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 or gimmick or something like that uh, since then, and, and it structures the literature. Um, I, don't, I don't say that this argument is false, but I, I rather, I'm trying to say that Secularization can be um, maintained as as a as a concept if if by that we mean something completely different, precisely as the privatization of religion or a decline of religion. So, in other words, to think to rethink about secularization beyond the secularization thesis, which is a very late uh, 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 myth to some extent, late in the sense that it's it's really something that has been you know, formulated um, probably not before the 20th century. So the operation and the methodology that I'm trying to deploy, much more than simply a, de a new definition, is, I mean, sort of reads as follows, that is to say, when did philosophers in Europe, when did they start enunciating secularization? Mm. That is to say, not starting with the notion that this concept would be a sort of tool, but rather to say, to sort of inquire into the way in which secularization has been formulated by, by certain, you know, actors. Well, if you go back to this matrix, then of course Hegel, I mean, of course, it's not really... Um, <laughs> doesn't really goes without saying, but this is how uh, yes, I approach do say. it. <laughs> do say. <laughs> that Hegel actually formulates the what I would call the order of secularization or the discourse of secularization, but actually it formulates itself as an order in 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 different ways, namely because it says you must secularize A or B, I mean your religion. Um, and also it's an order because it it, it just gives order to a certain world in a certain way, so to speak. So it's not just a discourse, purely a discourse. So my method, this is what I can say, is that I'm trying to think about that through another method, an alternative method. And it starts by taking seriously the fact that Hegel formulated secularization as his discourse that claims that, the, that heaven must be realized on earth. And for me, this is the real matrix of what we can call secularization. Mm. Namely, when at a certain point in time, um, philosophers, but also uh, um, thinkers more generally, uh, people that we would call journalists now, I, um, uh, but also uh, people who are involved in politics directly, industrial uh, uh, um, um industrial uh, um, projects such as the St. Simonians um, and also for that matter in colonial projects actually deploy this order of secularization. This is what they say about what they do. They say what we're doing is to actually make what religions were trying to make, we're making it real whereas they were sort of projecting it somewhere else, right? In an otherworldly reality, which of course is a, de a delusion and so on and so forth. And I was interested in taking this moment seriously, namely what happens at a particular moment in time when people 
um, in the West, of course, mostly, start saying not that we should get rid of religion, but they are saying we should make religion real. And I don't think that this moment has been taken seriously enough, in fact. Mm. Because what happens at that time, at that moment, is that it's not one narrative of secularization that is being deployed. It's the different versions of secularization that we know that are being deployed. There is this version, but also this version that we would only be, that secularization or secularism would only be a continuation of Christianity, is precisely something that they say at that moment in time, right? And so the very idea of decline, the idea that religion is declining, is just a particular version of, of this narrative, right? So this is my method, that is to say, I start with the discourses, when do we speak of secularization, and then I analyze what actually changes in the very practices that are being deployed by these people who actually say this about what they do, right? It's like we're secularizing um, religion, that is to say we're making religion real on earth. So this is the method. And of course, it's not just an archaeology in the Foucauldian sense, in the sense that it doesn't just analyze discourses, but it shows, and this is what, it, what the book does, it, sh it actually examines what changes in the history of colonialism when precisely the, this, this, this discourses emerges and what changes, of course, in terms of race and in terms of, of so-called extractivism. Mm. Um, so one of the, one of the key moments uh, to which you go back quite often uh, throughout the book and with which you, you open the book uh, is the Napoleonian campaign in Egypt in uh, 1798. So like a few years before Napoleon became first consul and then emperor, uh, with his quite truly stunning claims that he makes that the French are the true Muslims mm -hmm. uh, in, in the present context of what could be considered as the most sophisticated Islamophobic, Islamophobic state. This comes at quite, quite a shock, to say the least. Uh, could you tell us more about this claim and this ideological framework that links the French Revolution, which of course happened like just a few years before that, uh, secularization and the empire to come. Um, there are many things to say about this sentence. I mean, um, Edward Said himself um, mentions it in, in, in his book, Orientalism, and I was a bit dissatisfied with the way in which he analyzes it. Not only him, in fact, but, but many other scholars who mention this this um, this sentence. Um, I think that this sentence goes beyond the borders of Orientalism and, is some, and certainly a bit more than mere opportunism, in my view, a strategic opportunism. It is, of course, but it's more than that. Um, at least because, you know, Napoleon also said things like, I made myself, I transformed myself into a Muslim in Africa in the same way that I transformed myself, uh, or rather the, the opposite, sorry, I, I became Catholic in France uh, and in Europe um, in a way that is similar to the way in which I became a Muslim, so to speak, in, in, uh, in Africa. This is the sovereignty of the people. Mm. So it means that there is something more there. Of course, this is a strategy, but it's also the way, it's a certain authoritarian version of democracy to some extent, right? Uh, of, of representing or representation, right? political representation, um, but it means that here the secularization of empire is a way of um, converting itself um, to, the, to the religion of the majority, and in fact it's, it's in fact a new kind of, of concept here. That is to say you really think of religion as it becomes strategic precisely because the very notion of religion changes, that is to say it becomes something mm. that you can measure. In a, in a statistical way and that you can represent in the notion in the sense that you can say ah I need to become I need to present myself as as um, as as, uh, as, uh, as as a member of this religious community which is also the religious community of the of the people right mm -hmm. so I'm saying that even the possibility of becoming strategic about that presupposes a new conceptual framework in fact a new way of of thinking about religion and and practicing uh, uh, politics in a different way, in fact. Um, so that's the first thing I can say. 
Um, the second thing is that for me, it's, 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 it's quite a rupture, or at least it indicates a rupture, um, because um, it's a moment when um, you have a colonial structure or colonial project that doesn't seek to massively convert Muslims to Christianity, or in fact, you know, colonized subject to uh, 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 Christianity, which I think um, has always tracked me as something, you know, new at the time and something that, that um, requires that we think about the specificity of what's happening. Um, now, as far as the, um, the question of Islamophobia, as you say, is concerned, um, yeah, of course, it's quite it's quite troubling. But you know, once you think about um, the fact that the states need to, um, even though they are secular, they need to say something about um, what should be a proper Islam. For example, in in this context, in France. Then there is something about the continuation of this policy that I think is is at stake. So, um, so yeah, um, I think that this is how it enlightens the present, so to speak, um, and which also shows that the very category of Islamophobia, even though it has some, you know, I mean, was useful and maybe probably is still useful in in, in for different reasons. Um, from an analytical point of view, it has it has its own you know limitations, of course, mm. and this is one limitation, obvious limitations in my view. Now, as far as the um, ideological framework is concerned, um, I mean, mostly, um, if there was one way of defining the ideological framework, I would say that it is a form of anti-clericalism, um, which is very French, of course, but. But, uh, but not only, I mean, it's, it also has other layers. And part of this, and I think this is the main argument I'm trying to make, part of um, this ideological framework is that, of course, anti-clericalism is, is a way of criticizing the church, and, and in this case, the Catholic, the hegemony of the Catholic church. So this is, you know, it goes without saying. But the interesting thing is that there is a moment when um, this anti-clericalism presupposes or has to say something about about Islam and about the you know Prophet Muhammad um, in order to precisely deploy its own discourse and the things that um, these um, um, you know secularists, if you want to put it that way, say about him. Is that he's not, you know, he's not only the antichrist or things like that, but he's this great man who is a lawgiver, and I think that that this definition of, of the prophet as a lawgiver, uh, legislateur, um, is quite important in the way in which actually Napoleon uh, thinks of himself during the, the the campaign to Egypt, because precisely it's 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 this notion that the prophet is um, is using religion, instrumentalizing religion in order to actually achieve a great political unification, mm -hmm. right? Um, and I think that Napoleon really sincerely thought of himself as a continuation of the, of the prophet, not in, in spiritual terms, but in the, fact, in the sense that he was trying to achieve a similar kind of conquest and a similar kind of unification, right? which shows that this idea that Islam would be reducible to this sort of Arab conquest um, is something that has um, um, uh, shaped, in fact, um, what Said you, you used to call, and other scholars used to call Orientalism. But um, it authorizes something, um, something important in, in, you know, in, in the kind of um, colonial policy that 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 um, that Napoleon, for example, invents, right? And it's a very specific kind of colonial policy, which of course engenders in the French context or francophone context this notion of, of the French Empire as an Islamic empire, right? Which has the legitimacy uh, 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 um, um, that actually um, authorizes this empire to, um, you know. Um, um, shape the Sharia, codify the Sharia, and so on and so forth. So I think that something is happening here, 
which is going to give birth to um, to new kinds of practices. So this is the main point I'm trying to make. Mm. Um, and then an, another key moment of, of the book uh, comes in the in the second Napoleonian Empire, so Napoleon III, uh, which is uh, the French colonization of Algeria. And you talk about it as the paradigm of, the proce of a process of racialization of Islam, which, of course, we can still see today as Muslims in France are always assumed to be Arab or Amazir, never black, South, uh, sorry, never black, South or Southeast Asian, for, uh, etc. Um, and so uh, after, and after the end uh, of the Côte de l'Indigena in 1946, non-Jewish Algerians were even called Muslim French of Algeria, uh, which is, of course, uh, the main part of Algerians back then. Um, could you please tell us how this racialization is an effect of the secularist ideology? Yes, so this is an important question. Um, but I must say that, I mean, you know, the Code de l'Indigena didn't really exist as such. And in fact, I just want to say that non-Jewish Algerians were called Muslim French of Algeria um, since 1870, actually, after the Crémieux dec Decree which was granting citizenship to um, Algerian Jews, actually. Mm. Um, um, I think that um, the idea of the racialization of Islam as such, um, for me, is a way of understanding the juridical dimension mm. of... Uh, of um, of um, of the indigena, um, because you know there would be an objection, which would be a legitimate objection um, that would you know um, that would argue um, that precisely you know um, colonial racism you know talks about. Arabs, it, it divides Arabs and and um, and North Africans, as you were saying, or Amazir or Berber, actually is the word. Um, there is also, of course, um, not only a massive Arabophobia, but also a colonial anti-Semitism, which is very powerful in 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 colonial Algeria. Um, um, so colonial racism deploys itself against um, many. I mean, you know, it's not reducible, in other words, to just, you know, a form of sort of Islamophobia, and I wouldn't even use this word to describe mm. what's happening at that time. Nevertheless, what I'm trying to insist on is the juridical aspect, that is to say, how is the indigena constructed as a law, legally speaking? And from a legal point of view, then what is happening is both a racialization and a codification of religion. Mm -hmm. Because um, what happens is that both Jewish Algerians and Muslim Algerians are defined through their so-called personal statuses, right? The statut personnel, mm. even before 1870. Um, but the, the implementation of the statut personnel and therefore of the indigena um, itself, I don't know how you would translate it, in fact, this is quite a question. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, you know, this binary of, that, that actually divides, you know, the citizen and the subject, so what constitutes the colonized subject as such. Well, um, what, what implements it institutionally is not only race as such, but the way in which uh, uh, um, uh, religious laws are being codified by the colonial state. Mm. And it happened during the 1860s, in fact. So under the Second Empire in, French, in France. Um, and um, so what I'm trying to see, to examine, is that it's not the settlers themselves who have been um, instrumental in the implementation of, of, um, of, of this colonial racism, mm -hmm. right? So 
I'm trying to see that the implementation, the institutionalization of racism in this particular context is linked to uh, codification of, of what is actually called religious laws, right? And I think that it's particularly important in the case of, in the case of Islam precisely because, um, as I was saying, this, the, the status of, of, of the indigenous or colonial subjecthood, if you'd like, is implemented during the 1860s, so both for uh, Jewish Algerians and, and, and Muslim Algerians, but as soon as 1870, I th in, in fact, this status is actually, um, uh, defines only Muslims, actually, mm. right? And the status of Muslims in this, in this, um, in, in Algeria. So what happens at that time um, is that you have a clear, and this is why I think it's paradigmatic, you have at least, so as I, I was saying, you have at least two uh, processes. That is to say that the Sharia, um, which could be described as, as, um, as a complex of ethico-juridical practices, which weren't codified as such, precisely, precisely become codified. Right? And this is what defines the so-called native for the colonial administration. So it has to do with the codification of the Sharia and the, and the transformation of the Sharia into, in fact, what you could call an Islamic law. Um, and it is implemented, implemented specifically for Muslims, right? But by the colonial state itself, right? So the French state actually implements this codified Sharia and the model of the Sharia, as has been shown by, by scholars such as Wail Halak, for example, the model of that is, is, um, is the civil code, the Napoleonic civil code, right? Which also makes Algeria paradigmatic to the extent that the civil code is not only a model for what happens in Algeria, but will eventually become a model for the codification of the Sharia in virtually uh, 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 in most of the Muslim worlds, if you want to put it that way. Which is why I think that there is something important happening at that time uh, in Algeria, mm. which is not just French um, to some extent, right? Um, and um, so this is what I'm trying to uh, I'm trying to um, to think here, and it's a direct conversation with uh, with scholars, um, so I, such as Halak, but also. Uh, uh, other scholars who have focused on, on Egypt uh, under the influence of, of, of Tarar Assad, but also Sabah Mahmoud, who have shown that there was a certain kind of secularization happening in Egypt in the, con in the very constitution of the Sharia as, as a personal status, but also as, as increasingly a, a, a something reducible to a family law, right? And what I'm arguing is that actually this process, if you look at Egypt, is quite late, and it actually is something that happens, uh, 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 in fact, before that, in um, in Algeria. And it happens in a very interesting and complex context, in which you actually have a settler colonial state, but that actually the people who implement this indigenous and this the who actually you know transform. The very fact of being a Muslim into a sign and definition of what it means to be colonized, basically, because this is really what it means to be a Muslim means to be a native. So it's the context where, it, where it's, a, it's a settler colonialism that is being deployed, but then the people who implement it are actually trying to limit settler colonialism and to construct a sort of apartheid state in which there would be a coexistence between separate, you know, native lands and um, and European lands uh, in which you know there could be a sort of settler colonialism, but a sort of contained settler colonialism. To some extent, they they failed. So it was the Saint Simonian policy called association, which to some extent is comparable to a, a sort of French indirect rule. And I'm trying to see that what seems to be a marginal part of the colonial history is actually something that has been very central in the codification and the jury the juridical implementation of indigena in, in this context. Mm. <clears throat> so let's come now to one of the main arguments of the book, um, which is, uh, if, I, if I may 
perhaps simplistically uh, synthesize it, which is uh, the destruction of divine transcendence that leads to uh, that. Of course, we see through the through the secular secularist process that leads to European empires desecrating the underground and engaging with a massive extractivist campaign, which itself leads to the climatic crisis in which we currently live. Uh, could you take us through these arguments that link secularization and global warming? Yes, sure. I mean, the first thing I want to say is that I, I, I don't really use the category of secularism um, that much. Yeah, secularization, sorry. Right, 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 right. But it's also a way of um, of answering a, a part of your previous question to the extent mm -hmm. that um, that I don't want people to think that um, I'm thinking about secularism secularism as a sort of unified ideology. Um, for me, secularization is an important word because it it makes it makes us able to see how different processes overlap. Um, and for me, it's not just one process. Um, it's a way of understanding how different changes at different moments in time, uh, more or less simultaneously, but also at different, you know, points, I mean, different places in the world, right? How they sort of overlap. Um, and for me, this goes far beyond the sort of uh, so-called colonial implementation of a secularist ideology, mm. right? Which I think doesn't really happen, in fact, because it's much more complex. So, um, so in other words, I don't mean to say that, for example, secularism as a doctrine, mm. um, is something that has led to climate change, for example, mm -hmm. is not my argument, right? Um, so, but to take you through this argument, right, um, I should say that I see at least, um, I see at least three layers that I'm, that I'm trying to, to articulate, right, via this link. Um, the first one is that I'm interested in understanding what are the conditions of an actual extraction, what we call extractivism. And what I think is that there has to be a disenchantment not only of how we conceive of the earth, but a disenchantment of the subsoils themselves. That is to say, I, I'm trying to see how through the emergence of geology, for example, as, as, a, as, a, as a science, something happens which has to do with how the underground is think is thought of differently as a place where actually uh, um, uh, a series of non-humans who used to exist or used to be conceived of as inhabiting the underground are actually seen as you know inexistent and in, 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 in something that you know is is basically uh, uh, relates to a sort of super superstitious uh, belief right mm. So for me, there is a, a secularizing dynamic in the ways in which um, exploration is even possible, right? Before we can even sort of go underground, right? And I, I, I see a connection between this conception of the underground and the actual um, expropriation, not only of land, but of subsoils mm -hmm. by the state, first of all, because I think that the subsoils have to be um, uh, expropriated by the state before they can actually be uh, 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 privatized. In fact, in the, the, if, if one studies the English, uh, the British uh, uh, um, context, even though um, the state is not, in fact, officially um, um, the owner of the, of, of the subsoils, um, it, you know, in other cases is different, including in France, but there was a moment in time where the state had to expropriate the subsoils and actually had to expropriate also the subsoil by expropriating the churches, in fact, that, that you know, um, um, where um, it was a moment which made the privatization of the subsoils actually uh, uh, possible, right? So this is what I'm trying to take seriously beyond um, on the one hand, you know, the idea according to which climate change is, is just, you know, about colonialism, you know, it's, colonialism is just the, the only sort of uh, uh, um, cause or, you know, the only thing responsible for climate change. And on the other hand, you know, the idea that capitalism would be sort of um, uh, responsible mm. for climate change. So I'm trying to see to, to sort of um, uh, connect both explanations by trying to 
um, uh, propose other concepts, right? Um, and secularization, or rather imperiality and secularization, are for me ways of understanding um, uh, what's happening, especially in, during the 19th century, in a different way. Um, chronologically, of course, you know, um, you might you might say that um, you know precisely it's you know debatable because things happened long before that, and in fact, what I was describing is a process that you can trace back to uh, at least the 16th century. So you know, I don't think that chronologies are are you know stable, and mm-hmm. they have to be you know connected um, in a dynamic way. But um, I'm also trying to take the, mo- the 19th century as a very uh, central moment in time because I think that there is something obviously new which has to do with the usage of, of, of coal as a fossil mm-hmm. um, energy, right? And, and, and the fact that before that the coal was not used in that way. And I, I do think that this has to be explained in a certain way because it, and this really happens... Um, you know, around 1820, 18, uh, between the 1820s and, and 1830s. So it's a particular moment in time. So the way in which, and the reason why I started working on these uh, aspects is that precisely I was already interested through this inquiry into secularization, interested in understanding what was specific about colonialism as it was deployed since the 19th century. And I don't, and of course, you know, one one very obvious way of doing this is is to say, well, you know, you have the Industrial Revolution. So um, precisely because I was trying to use secularization as a way of understanding what changes in the very structure of empire during the, the 19th century, it made total sense to some extent to, to try and explain this, um, to try and describe rather aspects of this industrializing process in a, in a different way by using these categories I was trying to to um, to uh, to uh, to rethink, namely empire on the one hand, and secularization on the other. So this is for the first layer, um, first geological layer, geological <coughs> layer, and the second one is is already at stake in what I said, which is the state. This mm. is why I'm trying to think about a fossil state, um, and um, this comes from the fact that um, in different paradigms. I think that um, the, the, the centrality of the state as an institution is not, is not taken seriously enough. It's not, that, it's not that scholars haven't seen that the state was involved, but I was not really satisfied with the way in which um, they conceptualized actually the way in which the state was involved. Um, so this is why I'm, I'm, I, I, I think of the state um, as something that is, already, is always... Um, in connection with with capitalism, of course, but that that uh, participates in its transformation without being reducible to capitalism itself, which in a way is is a reading right of, of the notion of the primitive accumulation of capital, in which you know by I mean by which Marx actually says that you know, imper- what I would call imperial violence, including the state, uh, uh, participates in the making of of capitalism itself, right? But I think that it has. Um, it has a certain kind of autonomy, right? That, that this violence has a certain kind of autonomy that makes it uh, irreducible to capitalism itself. So my main argument here, if I, if I may put it in a Marxist uh, 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 language, is that imperial secularization should be seen as a matrix of the primitive accumulation, not only of capital, but of, cap- of fossil capital. So this is the main argument. I'm I'm um, I'm making, and the third layer is that of course as soon as you say this, you can't really think about the transformation of uh, capitalism into a fossil capitalism and, and the birth of a fossil economy, only from a so so called uh, uh, national point of view. Because if you think that the state is a central element in the making of fossil capitalism, then you have to think about the state in an international context, right? As a state which is always in competition with other states. So this is why I'm trying to deploy a geopolitical point of view, Mm -hmm. a geopolitical perspective on the climate crisis from this point of view. 
Um, this is why I use the notion of the imperial or imperiality as something that is not reducible to the colonial, precisely, because for me, imperiality is a way of understanding how states uh, um, um, are in competition with one another, especially, of course, European state, first of all, um, and the way in which they make war and the way in which they're trying to make peace, of course, right? Because empire is both um, something that they claim, that is to say, being an, emp an emperor in their own uh, uh, realm, right? Um, which, is which is claiming an absolute power uh, on, on earth. Uh, and of course, they do it against one another. So it's the way in which they are actually in permanent situation, uh, in, at permanent war with each other. But also, of course, for that very reason, um, imperi imperiality has always been also a model, a model of global peace. That is to say, of how you unify the world into a, a, a into a global sort of a, a, a peaceful order, right? So in my view, it determines the language of war and also the diplomatic language of how you, you're supposed to make peace. Mm -hmm. So this is, um, this, is, uh, this is what I'm trying to, um, what I'm trying to, um, to, uh, to analyze. And to some extent, I think that part of the argument is to say that these geopolitics of the climate crisis are secular geopolitics, right? Mm -hmm. So I have two more questions, but I, th I guess this one you already started to answer, so perhaps we don't need to spend too much time on it, but I was wondering to which extent you would agree that um, to say that your arguments are primarily built on a French ideological framework. Uh, it's, I mean, in the book you, you do speak a bit of Britain and Germany, but um, I mean, as we've seen with the references we talked about today, uh, we we tend to always go back to France when it comes to secularization. And so how much does this apply to, to other European empire? Uh, I mean, I think you, you already started talking about how maybe the French model is an intensification of those others, but uh, I guess I was curious. Well, the book starts with France, no doubt. Um, and then from, from this point of view, it deploys a, a comparative, um, approach. So it compares, you know, the French empire with, with the British empire and then the German, um, empire, which is a Reich, um, and which is, you know, marginally colonial. In fact, maybe we should talk a bit more about this chapter, which is sometimes just not really read as such, which is chapter, um, five of the book. Yeah, so this is a complex question. So it starts with France, um, no doubt. Um, I don't really think that um, that you know there is, as you say, I don't. I don't think that there is nothing specific about this French Empire. But I'm doing this because I think that in the for two reasons. In the French context, and this book has been written partly in France, not only. In fact, it has been written both in, 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 in a Francophone context and an Anglophone context, even though it's written in French. So it's, it's, this book is the product of, of this sort of back and forth, uh, not only between Paris and New York, but, but back and forth between two languages. Um, and there was a political urgency um, to uh, try and understand historically all this hysteria that was going on in France and that is still going on in France, right? So there is certainly something that is uh, that that relates to a situated point of view. That is to say that I'm an you know a North African scholar, um, and um, I think about um, colonialism through my perspective and in relation to a certain kind of condition that in fact I think doesn't really have um, a space to think that much because um, because um, because in the Anglophone world for example I mean many scholars who have been you know deemed post-colonial were actually uh, thinking about the centrali the centrality of, of India um, colonial India and India and therefore of the British Empire indirectly in the in the ways in which one would was 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 thinking about coloniality in general and about post post colonialism for that matter. 
Now you have other trends, of course, are the currents of, of thought. Um, um, for example, the decolonial, which seems to, um, at least in some of its versions, um, think about the centrality of, of, you know, of the American experience, like the so-called discovery, but actually the conquest and invention of the Americas, as a site from which one is to think about colonial coloniality per se, right? So what I'm doing is to simply that I claim the right, so to speak, to think about coloniality or, or what I call imperiality per se, or globally or in general, from a situated point of view, mm. right? Instead of just saying the situated point of view is, is, is just empirically... Uh, interesting but has to remain marginal because it has nothing to say about colonialism as such which i think is problematic and precisely i think that there should be multiple interventions um, that connect a certain a particular region in the world to uh, a more global perspective on colonialism that is to say i think that the sites from which we think should be seen uh, as perspectives on a global problem right um, so it was also a way of, um, of uh, thinking against the marginalization of, of, um, of, you know, our experience, I, I should say, um, but not by sort of claiming it, um, as saying, you know, let us be visible or something like that, but rather saying, well, you know, from this point of view, this is what we can see about not only colonialism, but also, you know, major problems uh, such as you know uh, global racism if you want to put it that way and again global and global warming to say the least mm. so uh, this is what i'm doing which might explain um, the reason why uh, you, people might have or one could have this perspective but the second thing i can say which is maybe more uh, epistemological or something um, has to do with the fact that i do really think that we see something else if we start by a so-called marginal empire and then from there try and, 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 and rethink about what is supposed to be a more central empire, such as the British Empire, for example, during mm. the 19th century. But right? you think the French Empire is marginal? It's a marginal empire. Well, compared to the British Empire during the 19th century, it is more marginal, yes. It has a certain kind of marginality, if only because it's the second empire, yeah. right? But uh, I wouldn't say it's totally marginal. In fact, I think that there is a centra. It's marginal from a certain point of view because it's the second one, and it is an empire of of many failures in different ways. But mm. in fact, these failures also constitute this empire in different ways. But also, I think precisely that my gesture consists in saying that there are many things about the French Empire that are actually very central to how we can think about empire and colonialism. And one of the one of the central uh, uh, things that I see about this this empire is that um, has to do precisely with you know how um, it transforms Islam and Muslims into uh, a colonial question, right? Um, because of the expedition to Egypt, but also because of the colonization of Algeria, which I think is much more than simply a French Algerian question. And this is this is probably what one of the things I want to do is to think about this question from, from by sort of um, trying to, um, to, uh, to uh, th think about the centrality of this experience and of this history beyond the sort of Franco-centric uh, uh, perspective. But the last thing I wanted to say is that more empirically, the things I was describing about the codification of Islam, um, or more precisely of Islamic law, is precisely because its model is French, uh, is the Code Civil, is the Civil Code, something that the British Empire never really did, right? Writing such a thing as a Civil Code, um, I think has been a model of, a, of, of political modernity uh, um, for other European countries, but also in, in what now we call sometimes the Global South. Um, and I think that it relates, it's, it shows that if one was to think about the centrality of the state, or what we call sometimes the modern state or the modern nation state, then uh, one has to look at France a bit more uh, 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 specifically, because in many ways, um, the ways in which France has, has tried to uh, uh, industrialize itself in competition with the British Empire was really linked to this sort of centralized apparatus, right? Which is so 
um, in, which is so French, so specifically French, but also has been, precisely for this reason, also a model for so many other countries, in fact, not only in, um, in Europe. So I think it's a face, a facet, a dimension of political modernity um, that um, something about, you know, that something in the French Empire sort of embodies or illustrates. Um, and this is what I'm trying to, um, to think about, I think, from this, from this point of view. But I just want to say a bit more about Germany because I've, I've, I've also sort of worked on, on, um, on what it means to, you know, to think about the imperiality of Germany, which is not exactly a colonial imperiality. Because precisely Germany has always sort of constructed, at least since the, 19, the beginning of the 19th century, this notion of a Reich as, as a sort of succession of the, of the um, German-Roman Holy Empire. Mm. Um, and I think that there is a distinctive imperial tradition here that is being transformed, especially in Prussia during the 19th century, and I think is being secularized in different ways also as Protestantism was nationalized, in fact, in, in Germany. And this relates to a, a facet of, of empire that is not reducible simply to colonialism. And I don't say that the French have you know, been so central in the making of this imperial tradition, but even though it's less visible in the book because it doesn't start from there, um, it's certainly something I, I, I take into account. Um, and I, I, I see as, um, as um, if you want to use that word, very central, um, as much as, as the French Empire is. And maybe it's, it's not really, once again, visible in the book, but in this, in this fifth chapter, um, I'm rewriting fragments of the history that, to some extent, you could see as what leads to... Uh, to um, to um, you know certain kinds of fascism and certainly um, you know uh, Nazism during the first Reich the third Reich sorry precisely because um, it's a certain it's a way of understanding how evangelicalism um, has been in many ways a German and English. Um, um, story precisely yeah. um, also because of the project in Palestine that I talk about during the, the, the 1840s which is a diplomatic sort of alliance and which in my view is inseparable from cannot be uh, uh, distinguished really from how they see and this is why I talk about geopolitics how they see the fate of what they call the fate of the Ottoman Empire so this is why I think that the decline of the Ottoman Empire by the end of the 18th century is something that really shapes um, the emergence of new kinds of politics and geopolitics, but also new kinds of discourses, these discourses being not only secular, but also religious. And for me, this is part of secularization. I don't see secularization as something that, that you know, is sort of exterior to religion, not at all. Um, and um, so, you know, this analysis, I mean, we could, we could go more into details here, but the thing is that I'm trying to emphasize that because... Um, I know that one of the objections would be, ha, ah, but this works only for France. But actually, it, it's, it's not the case, because if you take these, and these, these moments in the book seriously, I'm actually also trying to see how what I would call a new kind of Protestantism, a culturalized Protestantism, a racialized Protestantism, a nationalized and therefore internationalized Protestantism is part of how, for example... The British Empire and the and what is going to become the German Empire uh, uh, construct new forms of alliances, which are also uh, imperial alliances, right? Um, and here it's a way also of contextualizing or historicizing this binary between the so-called uh, Aryans and the so-called Semites in in a particular way or in a different way, because precisely here um, the whitening of Christianity. Uh, uh, um, deploys itself uh, uh, um, in a very particular um, circulation between empires. And to some extent here, the French play a very uh, marginal role, right? So there are moments in the book where I'm not really you know, thinking about the centrality of, um, of, um, of, of France, but I'm trying to think about um, 
aspects of colonialism during the 19th century um, from 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 sites from from points of view that that are you know rather marginal in 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 you know in 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 the anglophone literature yeah mm. this is what i'm trying to do uh, <clears throat> my very last question is uh, a bit of a curveball but i i sent it to you before so i guess that that would st straighten the ball a little bit more um but perhaps what we might be able to describe as a as a or, or maybe not i don't know but as a blind spot of the book and and of course and i guess i could i could say that for my previous question as well it's it's not that the book should be covering everything and should do like a a sort of objectivity of uh, an objective uh, 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 report on uh, uh, and all that, but it's 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 just that I think people should really realize how ambitious the book is, and and in many ways the book sort of meets its ambition, and therefore I I I wanted maybe to talk a little bit about what perhaps doesn't meet that ambition. Um, I mean you're describing this empires underground through this history and conceptualization of secularization mm -hmm. and in particular vis-a-vis -vis Islam uh, mm -hmm. throughout the book um, but perhaps this leaves out what we would describe as the empires on the sea rather than the empire under the earth mm. on which the, disco the discovery doctrine has been founded in what have been called Americas, Polynesia, Microna Micronesia, Melanesia uh, as well as, of course, the transatlantic slave trade, mm. which you which you refer to uh, uh, a few times in, in the book. But do you, do you think there is any way you, we could articulate these two paradigms together or are they too distinct from each other to, do, to be able to do that? I don't think that they're distinct for, uh, from each other. Um, you know, I don't know if I would call them paradigms, but I see what you mean. Um, I think it's a very important question and, and challenging question and I, 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 I really like this question actually. <clears throat> the first thing I can say is that from a chronological point of view what I'm trying to do is precisely to think about layers of empire that this paradigm of the empires of the sea doesn't account for. So of course you have this notion of a circumnavigation, right? Um, which is the very way in which the globe becomes the globe, if you want to put it that way. And this has been said, you know, since well, ages, I mean, since, you might say since Hegel to some extent, because, um, you know, there are these, 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 um, these pa pages in the philosophy of history where he talks about the, the fact that the relation to the sea explains, um, explains world powers, in fact, world empires, you know explains why world empires were world empires, in fact, right? So it means that for him, the, the, the mastering, the conquest of the sea is part of what makes an empire an empire, right? And then Marx, of course, sort of, you know, um, um, perpetuates this, this idea and, and, uh, and, um, and, um, and so on. But I'm interested in precisely thinking about what exceeds this paradigm. Mm. what is not included in this paradigm, what changes, um, at least during the 18th century. It doesn't mean that empires are not empires of the sea anymore, but it means that there are other layers, that there are other things that they're doing. Um, and this is why I was much more interested, not only in the earth and the, 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 their, their, their ter territorial uh, uh, um, uh, actions, because it's also something that has been examined in many ways. But precisely, I was much more interested in what was subterranean, because mm. I think that it was something precisely much more underground, right, and needed to be excavated, so to speak. Um, so if you'd like, it's a, it's an extraction of extractivism. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but. Um, but so this is why strategically, if you want to put it that way, I was not interested in adding much more layers to uh, to the C question, but rather to think about you know other aspects. So that would be my first question, my first um, answer. But I'm really thinking through what you're saying and what you're asking because uh, because I I think it's it's um, I mean you, you're you're giving me a a new. Uh, a new path, right, or a new direction for, for thought, a new in food for thought. So that's that's interesting. But the second thing I could say, um, 
is that um, as you as you uh, um, as you describe it yourself, you talk about certain regions, right? In the making, the colonial making, and, and naming of certain regions in the world, including the Americas, and and, and you know. Um, the, I mean, as you say, the transatlantic slave trade, Polynesia, Micronesia, Malaysia. As you can see, these um, these um, these regions, if you want to put it that way, or continents, for 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 or or circulations between continents, don't include uh, North Africa or the Middle East. You know, because I think that the the colonization of these regions, what we call now regions, I think involve another facet of of colonialism um, and empire and therefore require another kind of theorization of what is actually happening in these regions so this is what i'm trying to do um, does it mean to say that it's it it doesn't show something about you know empire in a much more sort of um uh, in a broader perspective on or in a in a in a in a in a more global way, if you want to put it that way, but um, but yeah, it's um, it's I think it's it refers to something else. So no, it's not a competition between two mm. paradigms at all. It's just that I think that much many things have been said about the sea, and I don't want really to add anything else. Um, but the last thing I wanted to say is that um, I would be wondering, I would ask at least as a question. Um, and I think it's partly the question I'm trying to ask in the book indirectly. How are empires of the sea linked to a certain kind of, of Christian colonialism? And how are these um, earthly empires in, in all possible ways, right, in all possible meanings of the word earthly, um, that is say earthly as opposed to heavens, but also earthly in the sense of territorial mm -hmm. and therefore opposed to the sea. Uh, how do these earthly empires, uh, uh, um, um, how, do they, how, how do they deploy another kind of connection to religion? Is it just you know, through a continuation of Christianity or is there, is there something else? And how do we need to think about secularity differently in order to think about the singularity or specificity of these empires? So this is really the way in which I approach uh, the history of colonialism in a different way by starting with questions about, about um, you know, politics and religion, and therefore also questions linked to how we might rethink the very concept of secularization. So this is, this is how you, I approach the history of, of, of colonialism. Yeah. Well, I, I see you managed to carve up a, a conclusion for this conversation. So thanks again, Mohamed, and, uh, and hopefully, uh, hopefully the book will be soon translated into English so that uh, our listeners who, uh, who wanted to, to read it will be able to do so. And in the meantime, they can uh, for the Francophone part of them, they can, they can read it at La Découverte in, uh, in France. And there are a few essays in English, of course, Wonderful. published in different places. Great. Thanks, Mohamed. Thank you. <laughs>